1: Hey, everyone. I'm David Chalian, the CNN political director. This is the Daily D.C. Impeachment Watch. Every weeknight, we've got you covered with up to the minute reporting and analysis into this fast moving impeachment inquiry. We're now in the seventh week of this inquiry, and I have got two fantastic guests today to help make sense of it all. In a few minutes, we'll be talking with Shan Wu, former federal prosecutor and current CNN legal analyst. First, I'm joined by the man behind CNN's impeachment watch newsletter, which everyone should sign up for. Uh, it is a must-read. CNN senior writer Zach Wolf. Back to the podcast. Thank you for being here.
2: Thank you very much. And I will remind everyone: cnn.com/impeachment. That's where you can get uh, the, the 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 newsletter. Sign up. We don't we don't spam you. We only send you the good stuff. So
1: <laughs> only the good stuff. Um, Zach, uh, in the absence of witnesses who were. Uh, Uh, supposed to testify. It seems that the House Democrats are now releasing transcripts of some of the witnesses that we've already talked about over the past several weeks. But as you know, it's been behind closed doors. We've been relying on reporting of what was said behind closed doors. Well, now we're seeing in black and white uh, the transcripts of these interviews uh, that these witnesses, at least two witnesses initially, have done with the uh, investigating committees on the Hill. Uh, I guess most uh, pertinently, at the moment is the former ambassador, Yovanovitch. Her transcript has been released. Uh, and this was um, a you know, sort of breaking news development today. And I think it's going to happen all week long. They've announced two more are already coming tomorrow. What are the highlights that you see of what you've already read in the
2: Yovanovitch transcript? Well. I think, first of all, it's really important that these are coming out because one of the main digs on the inquiry so far by the administration uh, has been uh, this lack of due process, this idea that they didn't have anybody in the room. And we now know from looking at these transcripts, while they didn't have their official lawyers there in the room, they did have... Uh, lawmakers essentially acting on their behalf and asking questions. It hasn't been quite as one-sided as only Democrats asking leading questions of these of these witnesses. And I think that that is an important thing to see. And we see that um, you know with Yovanovitch, with we see it with, with Michael McKinley, the 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 other guy, uh, State Department advisor, who um, uh, also had his transcript released. And we should just note. Democrats and
1: Republicans reviewed these transcripts before they were released, as did the witness themselves. So uh, everyone was able to review and did review before the release of these transcripts to the public.
2: But now, instead of having let's just leak out a little bit of what Yovanovitch said or McKinley said, we get to read Uh, you know, the chapter and verse, 10 hours, uh, you know, for a lot of these people of testimony, hundreds of pages, um, you know, the back and forth, and we can really pour over and dig into that stuff. And do you have initial highlights? Uh, I think um, what she says, Yovanovitch, what she says uh, specifically about Giuliani, uh, Rudy Giuliani, the president's personal attorney, essentially running this sort of shadow uh, diplomacy campaign, uh, very much in line with what we heard that her testimony was, but her descriptions of that are very interesting to me and the way it essentially undercuts, uh, you know, U.S. foreign policy in terms of supporting Ukraine against Russia. That's not what they were focused on. Giuliani had a totally different, uh, you know, set of priorities. So that's really interesting. And I also think just the, the, the back and forth about how she found out that she was being yanked out of out of Ukraine and her efforts to stay there. It's really interesting stuff, and you can tell that it was tearing at this woman that she almost didn't know what was going on. But the, the idea that she would be attacked by Donald Trump Jr., uh, by these other conservatives as not, not being good for U.S. foreign policy and then seek guidance. This is like a strange kind of H.R. scenario where Donald Trump is your boss and you're an ambassador and you're asking Gordon Sondland, the U.S. ambassador to the EU, what you should do. And he says to her, well, you should tweet your support for the president. I mean, that, that that's a pretty remarkable thing to tell, tell a U.S. ambassador. It was sort US, of a go big or go home kind of get, advice. Go yeah. big or go home. Did, I mean, do U.S. ambassadors even have personal Twitter accounts? Was he suggesting using the official Twitter account? It just There are all these kind of rabbit holes to go down with the, with this testimony. Just to uh,
1: give a quote of one of the things that Jovanovic told investigators to uh, what Zach is talking about, quote, in the Foreign Service at embassies, we have to leave politics in the United States. I mean, we represent all Americans. We represent our policy. This is how she describes uh, her state of mind as a foreign service officer. Um, All of a sudden, having domestic politics from the president uh, sort of encroach on her work felt so out of place. Uh, She goes on, uh, which must be like bizarro world for her to describe being notified about either the secretary of state or a top aide to Pompeo calling Sean Hannity to figure out why he is targeting Yovanovitch on his show and to ask for any backup, any evidence, any claims that he has that they can look into. And if that he doesn't have it, that he should knock it off because why— I mean, that is the craziest thing to think about, that she's being notified that a top aide or the secretary of state himself is placing a
2: call to a cable news host to figure out why they are talking about Yovanovitch. And then McKinley, let's talk about him for a second, Michael McKinley, this top aide to Pompeo, left suddenly. Um, And we now know from the transcript, he specifically one of the two reasons he left, uh, you know, importantly, is that he felt like domestic politics was being thrust upon diplomats. These people who are supposed to represent the United States to the forward facing to the world were being turned essentially into um, political tools for domestic political purposes. And he quit. Um, And, you know, this is a top aide to the secretary of state. He hasn't been very public about it. But you you can kind of imagine these sort of conversations going on at the State Department and what sort of stage of uh, emotional crisis that diplomats are in as they're forced to essentially choose an allegiance to the country as opposed to the president. Now, I mentioned
1: uh, these two transcripts were released today. I think uh, Volker and Sondland maybe uh, are getting released uh, tomorrow. And I mentioned at the top of the show, Zach, that um, these transcripts are sort of filling a void because there's a lack of participation from some of the – key witnesses that have been called to testify this week from the administration who are not showing up. What what do we know about the folks uh, who are not showing up to their requested testimony?
2: Well, there are some different reasons that they've cited. Um, you know, John Eisenberg, who I think is the single most important person we haven't heard from yet, uh, because he's the one who decided to, uh, you know, put the transcript of Trump's phone call with the Ukrainian president in that higher security uh System And he's uh, a White House counsel dedicated uh, to the national security team. He was essentially overseeing uh, Alexander Vindman, who, uh, lieutenant colonel on the National Security Council, who raised concerns about the Ukraine call, verified the transcript, raised concerns about it. So Eisenberg is sort of the stopgap. If you were to create a fall guy, potentially, this is the person you might create. And who knows if, if that's the direction it will go to. But he was kind of in this middle space for a lot of this stuff. He's not going to be there citing executive privilege. Uh, There are a couple of other uh, White House uh, aides who aren't going to be showing up uh, or at least didn't show up today. I think some of them have gotten subpoenas at this point. Um, A little bit later in the week, we might get to hear from Rick Perry, um, outgoing Secretary of Energy, who was one of the so-called three amigos who was was dealing with Ukraine policy. So he will be an extremely important witness. And then uh, maybe at the end of the week, um, and we don't know because there was this sort of test legal case with his um, his uh, former deputy and his own lawyer. But John Bolton, the former national security advisor, uh, could be showing up on Thursday. And that will be really important because, as you recall, in previous testimony, he is the person who we're told referred to the shadow foreign policy uh, that was going on as a kind of drug deal. Yeah,
1: you mentioned the Test court case. I mean, a judge last week uh, set up a hearing for December 10th in that case for Bolton's deputy, uh, Charles Kupperman, uh, who is awaiting a judge to say, who wins here? The White House doesn't want me to testify. The House wants me to testify. Please, judge, tell me what to do. Well, that hearing set for December 10th, that does not comport with the House Democrats' timeline.
2: Right. Nancy Pelosi uh, clearly wants to get this moving along. So if if we're not even hearing a court case until December 10th, we're maybe way into next year before something actually happens here.
1: Or the House Democrats perhaps are going to have to move forward without uh, all the testimony uh, that they seek. We'll have to see how they play that. Uh, We've got lots more to discuss, Zach. We're going to be back with former federal prosecutor Shan Wu. He'll be joining the conversation right after this quick break. Welcome back to the Daily D.C. Impeachment Watch. I'm David Chalian. Zach Wolf is still with me. And we are pleased to welcome CNN legal analyst Shan Wu. Thank you for joining us, Shan. Oh, you're welcome. I want you to hear an exchange that our colleague Dana Bash had yesterday on CNN's State of the Union uh, with Kellyanne Conway, the White House counselor. At the heart of it's sometimes hard to hear these exchanges because uh, Kellyanne always likes to talk through uh, her interviewer. But uh, at the heart of this was the issue of whether or not there was a quid pro quo Ukrainian aid for an investigation into political rival. Here's their exchange.
0: So you feel totally confident that at the core of this, the heart of this, there was no quid pro quo. I feel confident about the fact that Ukraine has that aid and is using it right now, that it's because of this president that they have it. the last last administration. Kellyanne, you you very notably won't say yes or no. It doesn't. Quid pro quo, yes or no. I just said to you, I don't know whether aid was being held up and for
1: Shen, my question to you, your legal background, I want you to explain to me, to our audience, is the quid pro quo, which obviously Kellyanne could not definitively say that there wasn't one, is that um, important for House Democrats to prove in this case?
3: Yes and no. Let me explain why. (laughs) Uh, The Trump defenders are really fixated literally on the words quid pro quo. They like to treat it as some sort of magical incantation. As long as they do not mouth those words, then there's no crime. And that's simply wrong. Quid pro quo just means something for something. The important question is, what was the intent... What were they trying to do with the quid pro quo? And the problem here is it sounds like what they're trying to do is something illegal. Asking a foreign power to intervene in U.S. elections is a campaign finance violation. And that's where the central importance is of the quid pro quo, not whether the president actually used the phrase or not. And when we try and kind of deconstruct Kellyanne's answer there, (laughs) what you hear her saying is, well, they have the aid now no harm, no foul. Totally irrelevant from a legal and analytical standpoint.
1: Is it it illegal for the President of the United States to hold up congressionally appropriated foreign aid for uh, something he wants in return from the country?
3: That in and of itself wouldn't necessarily be illegal because that's in some cases simply diplomacy. And one of his best arguments ultimately may be, I'm the commander-in-chief, this is foreign policy. What's illegal about it is he's trying to use that aid to help in his election situation against Biden, who's already declared himself a candidate. It's not speculative. It's ripe. Right. (laughs) And that's the problem.
1: Conway pushes back and says, "This was about 2016 Vice President Biden, uh, not the fact that he is a current candidate in 2020." I don't know if that argument will hold much uh, water either, because as you said, as a point of fact, he is a candidate in 2020 and a clear potential rival.
2: Exactly. There's all this talk about something for something, so you're exchanging the thing of value that Trump is getting is the investigation, and the thing of value that the country is getting is either meeting with Trump or aid of of some kind so Is that even required? Does there have to be that exchange of things? Or is it just the pressure? Is it just Trump saying, I need you to do this to help me politically? Does that make it illegal in campaign
3: finance law? Or does there have to actually be
2: some sort of exchange?
3: That's an excellent distinction to make. It's really, for the impeachment purposes, my analysis is, it's the pressure. That's the abuse of power. The fact that there is something valuable, $400 million in aid, significant. (laughs) Uh, That is an important part of explaining what Trump was trying to trade. In terms of the campaign finance violation, the language is something of value, and certainly contributing an opposition research effort to an opponent is something of value.
1: When you say... For the impeachment effort, you're you're, you're, make, you're making a distinction that it's not a legal proceeding, right? I mean, when you say the pressure is the thing that is abuse of power, you're, you're now talking in uh, impeachment terms, a political process, not a legal process.
3: Exactly. One can distinguish between the crime that may have occurred here, which is the campaign finance violation, which, of course, can be an impeachable offense, versus, as Zach was pointing out, the pressure aspect... Pressuring someone doesn't necessarily violate a criminal statute. But when you're president of the United States, you're holding up $400 million in aid. That kind of pressure can certainly be seen as an abuse of power.
1: I want to turn to comments that the president made uh, this weekend about the whistleblower, uh, because part of the pushback and part of the president's... um, Uh, messaging machine right now, not just him, but some of his allies and supporters, is to question where is the whistleblower and, and sort of demand that the whistleblower be unmasked. Here was President Trump this weekend. There have been stories written about a certain individual, a male, and they say he's the whistleblower. If he's the whistleblower, he has no credibility because he's a Brennan guy. He's a Susan Rice guy. He's an Obama guy.
3: And he hates Trump.
1: Shan, this seems to me, and I'm not a lawyer, so you're going to have to explain here. This seems to me to fly in the face of exactly what whistleblower protection laws are about. Uh, If the president of the United States can stand on the South Lawn and and demand that this whistleblower be revealed and named, it just seems to completely be antithetical to the whole purpose, uh, which maybe you can speak to about the whistleblower protection laws.
3: It absolutely is. Uh, I've represented whistleblowers, and every single one of them is very worried about their safety, worried about their career, and therefore their anonymity. The whole purpose of the protections in the whistleblower law is to encourage people to come forward to make sure they won't be retaliated against. If this was a corporation, the HR department, would be making sure the executives weren't making any kind of announcements to the employees to say, this is a bad person, they're against us, go find out who they are. It's elevated to a astronomical degree when you have the President of the United States talking to the world about his views on the whistleblowers. So that, to me, by itself, is another kind of an abuse of power.
2: I've been looking at this idea of whistleblower protections. We we all say that whistleblowers have protections. What exactly do those protections look like? Because they aren't quite as spelled out, I think, as people probably expect.
3: I think number one is the idea that you want to literally physically protect them from retaliation, such as harassment or even worse, violence. And when the president is saying things which criticize the person, asking people to help unmask, that person, that is exactly the kind of thing you don't want happening with whistleblowers. So I think that's really a prima facie case of trying to, and the president is known for this, trying to incite people to harass any kind of what he views as a political opponent. But there is no mechanism to enforce whistleblower
2: protection if the one doing the pressuring or the person doing the
3: harassment is the president. It's, it breaks the system. It does break the system, and it goes back to kind of the underlying legal issue in all of this, which is the power of the executive. And obviously, Trump and his supporters want to take the view that the executive is really a king, and the king cannot be disciplined by his kingdom. On the other hand, if you view the Constitution as talking about sharing of power, the king can be disciplined. And so if the president violates the whistle protection law or any other law, he should also be held accountable.
1: Zach, it's Monday, so let's look ahead to the week that will be in this impeachment inquiry. What are some of the highlights you're looking for this week?
2: I think what we won't see is a lot of new testimony we saw today, uh, people not show up for testimony. So if Democrats try to piecemeal put out these transcripts, it will be in every single day there will be something new and exciting for us to pour over and feast on in these transcripts because they are so much more detailed than 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 the little bits of information that we got before.
1: Shan, Zach, thank you so much for joining me on the Daily DC Impeachment Watch. And thanks to our listeners. Uh, We've got a new episode for you every weeknight. So please make sure to subscribe on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Podcasts, Spotify, whatever your favorite podcast app is. And while you're there, leave us a rating or a review. It really helps people find the show. We'll see you tomorrow.